Hi, Mary Stewart. Hi, Lori. How are you? I'm doing well. I am so excited that you are here. And I know we've been talking about this for a while now. So I'm excited we finally get to have our Startup Life Uncensored interview. And just to provide some context of how we met, which I think is so funny because I kind of feel like we should have known each other 10 years ago. <laughs> we met through a virtual networking group and we were kind of made as matches just based on our backgrounds and interests and it's clear that we both have a lot of startup experience and just so many things in common so thank you so much for being here thank you for having me this is one of my favorite things to chat about so i'm super excited yay awesome so just to kick things off I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about your history working in startups and also what you're up to these days sure so i have worked for two startups in-house and then i've always kind of helped friends with their startups and consulted on the side. So recently in the past, let's see, it's been about nine months now, I went out on my own and started my own consulting business to help early stage startups. So now I've worked with just over 10, yeah, 10 clients now across just about every vertical. And I mainly focus on helping them scale their sales team, whether that's hiring, onboarding, process, CRM, anything in those areas. And then also on the company culture side. So I love helping early stage startups really set the tone for their company culture and then helping them figure out how to focus on it on a continuous basis so that it can stay at the forefront of everything from hiring to their one-on-ones, their all hands meetings, town halls, company retreats, all the things. It's really exciting to me. So now I am a sales and company culture consultant. I love it. And I love that when you first told me that, as you were telling me, I'm like, how do we not know each other? We like all the same things. Like my background was building support teams. Yours was building sales teams. But then we were both just obsessed with this idea of strong company culture and employee retention. It was like, we should talk. This random like networking site did a good job matching us up. I love it. So let's talk about one of the first startups you ever joined. What was that experience? What brought you there? And what was your interview process like? So my first startup was actually a matchmaking company based in Los Angeles. And I actually joined the company after I attended an event that they threw and had a great time at the event, met some of the employees that were helping to put on the event. And just the more I talked to them, the more interested I became in the company in general. I've always been a matchmaker of sorts, whether that's setting up friends for dates, friends that move to new cities and they need to make friends in that city to just you know, networking connections and relationships, things like that. So I was very intrigued by their business model, the team that they had already established. And then as luck would have it, a couple of weeks later, actually, they raised another round of funding and they were expanding their team and hiring people for business development and matchmakers. So I applied and went through a lengthy interview process that was actually really fun and then joined the team. I was actually one of the first hires in LA. I think I was employee number seven. And then we eventually scaled to 11 different cities across the country. So I was with them for two years and got to see a ton of growth which was really, really exciting. Yeah, and also we all know two years in startups is actually like 10 years anywhere else. <laughs> it was a wild and really, really fun ride. I think I didn't know how spoiled I was with that startup until I you know, took on other roles after that. And I realized that it kind of was this perfect little environment, not perfect, perfect, but 
just amazing environment that they had created with incredibly intelligent people. I wish I had the better words to explain it. It was just such a magical first experience. I realized, oh, this is not the norm. This is an outlier. And a big reason of why I wanted to help other companies moving forward to kind of create that environment for them as well, because it created a really great space. Absolutely. I had such similar experiences with my first startup. It's I hate to say, you know, the grass is always greener, but you kind of think like, oh, everyone's going to be like this because this is the only experience I have. Then you experience something else. You're like, oh, crap, that was that was definitely a gem. You mentioned that the interview experience was really fun. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and what was so fun about it? So it was multiple rounds, but the first round was actually a group interview. I and mean, they did uh, almost like a roundtable discussion about what people's perceptions were about being a matchmaker. Because as you could imagine, if you think about it, people see a job posting to be a matchmaker and they might think like, oh, that sounds super fun and easy. I love love. And I want to do this. And so that first roundtable discussion really was there way of sussing out who was just there because it'd be really fun to be a matchmaker and who had that spirit but also had you know the ability to kind of deliver on other fronts as well you had to be great at sales you had to be great at client management you had to have great communication because you're communicating with so many different kinds of people all different ages races religions everything and then both in person because you're meeting every single person in person whether that's at an event for coffee for a meal, and then a lot of email communication and phone communication as well. So they did that first round interview as a group, and then they pulled us off, you know, one by one to have the individual interviews. But it was just so much fun, and I could tell how much each person at the company loved the job because they just were so passionate about it. And I knew I could tell how smart they were as well. And so it just made me really excited to join the team because I wanted to join the group of people doing something that seemed really interesting. I love it. I am also really impressed that with such a small company, they had such a rigorous interview process because I think I was employee number 10 at my first startup and I literally either sat on the floor or on a cardboard box in my interview. So I'm very impressed that it was so put together. <laughs> we had a very efficient COO and she was just so smart and knew what she was doing. And I think that was one of the first things that she put into place to make sure that they were hiring the right people. Because as you know, when you're super early stage, every person makes a huge difference, whether that's in a great way or in a really negative way. But each hire is so, so crucial. It's not like when you're Series C funding and you're hiring 100 people in a month. I mean, it kind of dilutes it a little bit, but when you're hiring one person a month or one person a quarter, it makes it really important to hire the right people. That's such a good point. Absolutely. I also love that I know how important networking is for you. And that's, you know, kind of the topic of this episode today. And I love that you found a company where you kind of got to do that and it, you know, reinforced your value that you have around that as well. That actually is what jump started me into networking. So we had a requirement that we had to attend two events per week. Sometimes we went to more because there are a ton of really fun events going on in Los Angeles, but at bare minimum, we went to two and you had to learn how to walk into a room and figure out the best way to meet as many people as possible, but in an authentic way. It wasn't just a game of like, how many people can I physically say hello to and, you know, get my name and face in front of them, but how can I actually meet the most people, but connect with them, learn something about them so that they could either become my client or that I could match them with my client. So you had to become kind of this ninja of networking. So if you added up, you know, two years of two events per week, it was a crash course in networking and also 
just learning how to do it effectively, efficiently. And then that's when I created the idea to come up with my own Google Sheet. So LinkedIn is great to connect with people. I mean, all social platforms are, but I found that it wasn't enough in terms of context of how I met someone and details they shared with me because I wanted to be able to keep track of everyone. I was meeting such a huge amount of people that I was forgetting people I met a month ago. So what I started doing is I created a Google Sheet, almost like my, or I call it my master contact list. And in that, it's all the typical fields, you know, name, email, location, company, title, et cetera. But then on the notes section, actually that became the most important part. So I could write, you know, personal details that they shared in our conversation so that it would jog my memory in case I reached out to them two or three years later. If I emailed them and included something about our conversation, they were blown away that I remembered that. And it just helps the connection a lot as well. So that was one of the biggest takeaways from that job. And it's really helped me throughout my career after that. And is actually what helped me start my consulting career because I was able to go back into that master contact list to really start looking for clients through that. And the more you know points of contact I had with them afterwards, the better that connection was and therefore the more likely they were to hire me. What a great tip for anybody, you know, out there who's trying to build their network. I mean, as you were talking about the networking component, it sounds like a salesperson boot camp. I mean, in order to schmooze a crowd, remember conversations, keep track and really build your network. I just keep thinking like, what a great sales tactic. It really is. And you were asking a little bit about the onboarding experience with that startup and that's what it was. So they didn't have a perfectly done binder yet. I mean, we were super early stage. So obviously there wasn't a ton of process built out around the onboarding or ramping experience of new hires, but it was a ton of shadowing. And I actually learn really well that way. Like I want to, I want to be in the thick of it early on and learn and ask questions along the way. But I remember the day before I started, there was an event going on in Santa Monica and they said, go ahead and come wear a red something, dress, top, skirt, whatever it is. And you know, you'll have your name tag there and then work the crowd. And those were my only instructions. And so I quickly found a matchmaker that I knew from the interview process, linked up with her and just said, like, you know, can I shadow you? Can I learn how you do this? I think I was like 25 or 26, I don't know, it was very early on in my career when I was still a little bit like, how do I go talk to someone who's in their 40s or 50s that I don't know if I have anything in common with them? Do I just, you know, there was a lot to learn. It was a steep learning curve, but I learned that after like two or three weeks of that, I was like, oh, we're all just people. You can find something in common with anyone and we're all just figuring it out. So that helped me not be intimidated by the people that I was meeting and reduce my anxiety around it. And now I'll walk into a room of 2000 people at a conference and be like, all right, let's go. <laughs> I love it. Well, and it's funny because you're talking about this challenge of kind of figuring out how to be like a star people person. What were some of the other challenges you had early on in your startup experience? One of the biggest challenges was managing such a large team. So I was actually overseeing three separate teams. It was the sales team, the client success team, and the campaign strategy team. And sometimes that was upwards of 12 people. And so it was 12 people, which is a large amount, I think, to be managing in the first place, but also across three different teams doing three different functions. And this the part that was the trickiest for me was I only had experience in sales. I mean, some client success or client management, but I hadn't officially been in a role like that before. And then I had zero experience on the campaign strategy side. So I wrestled a lot with, okay, how do I effectively manage a team that I don't know how to do any part of their job? I didn't even at that point know how to use our internal tools to manage the campaigns. 
Mm. So I had a lot of learning to do there. And that was probably the messiest learning curve I've ever had because I was just so overwhelmed. It was, you know, keep the business afloat and keep revenue coming in the door with the sales team keep the clients happy, but then also help this team execute these campaigns. And I didn't know how to do that. So I had to really, it was humbling because you have to go to the people that you manage and say, Hey, can you teach me how you do your job so I can help, you know, motivate you and be able to empathize with you as you experience the challenges that you're going to face in your job so that I'm not just talking at you. I can actually understand where you're coming from, but that took a while. That was probably the most humbling part of being a leader of a team. You bring up such an interesting point around, you know, managing people where you don't necessarily know how to do their job. And a lot of times people are looking at the leader as, you know, the know-it-all or the person who's going to know how to do it all. I know company culture is really important to you. So I'm curious to know how you kind of use your disadvantage to build culture with that team. Yeah. Great question. I'd say the main thing that I did was just be really open and transparent. I used to think that a leader was someone that held it together all the time and seemed perfect and always had the answers. And I do want to have the answers for my team, but sometimes I can't physically do that. And I've learned for me, the best way for me to, me to approach it is to just tell them, you know, Hey, I don't know how to do your job. I would love your help with this. And then putting specific time on the calendar of when I can learn certain aspects of their job and core functions, being really open with that and being, being vulnerable. I know that's such a buzzword right now, but it really is just coming to them and telling them exactly where I am with certain issues. And I could see how much they appreciated that. I wasn't coming in pretending like, oh, I know how to do your job and I can do it better. I don't see the point in that. That was a really powerful thing for me to learn. And I've stayed close with people that I did that with because I think they respected me more because of that. And they had, you know, shared that as well. So that was really interesting to see. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I know it's the buzzword, but I think for me personally, one of the characteristics I look for in leaders is that vulnerability and you don't want someone who has their shit together 24 seven. We're all human. We all are experiencing life and you just need to know that, you know, you have their back and they have yours. Yes. I'd say that's the other biggest thing is I might not know this now and I'm looking to you to teach me, but there's going to be other things where maybe both of us don't know, but we'll figure it out together. And I like to say for my teams, I always say like, it's not life or death. You know, we're not in the medical profession where it might be, we're in a, a field where nothing is ever going to be life or death. So Let's keep that in the back of our minds. Let's keep level heads and let's be rational about the decisions that we make, all those types of things, but we will figure it out together. Or if there's something you don't know, I'm going to take the time to teach you because then you'll know moving forward. So just kind of keeping that into perspective as well, because tensions can run high in any company, but in startups, when you feel like sometimes your hair's on fire every day, but if you can keep it together and try to keep a level head, I think it's really beneficial. Absolutely. I'm also curious to know, working with leaders now in your consulting role, what types of leaders are you drawn to or enjoy working with the most? I would say the best leaders that I'm drawn to now on the consulting side are ones that are open to feedback. Ooh, say more. <laughs> One of the biggest reasons I wanted to become a consultant is I've realized I've worked with a lot of consultants when I was in-house and they were always able to bring such objective perspective to situations that I wasn't able to see because I was so in the thick of it. I was in the weeds. It was, you know, consuming me. So I wasn't able to kind of pan out and see the macro like 10,000 foot view and they were able to come in and see and assess the situation a lot more clearly 
and give advice, which is so powerful. And I really aspired to be able to do that for other companies as well, because I saw how much impact they could make. So I wanted to become that resource for companies. But then I learned when I had my first couple of clients that the ones that were open to my feedback, whether it's good or bad, you know, constructive criticism or the other way, they were much more enjoyable to work with. And I could tell that they were willing to do the work to become better leaders and better founders in general and leaders of their teams. So that's probably the biggest one because if I can be candid, I of course say it in a very loving and caring way when I'm delivering this tough feedback, but if they can be open to it and actually take it and do it, it's so encouraging and amazing. And I think the other things I can deal with, other challenges, but I would say that and then their communication style. So I have a very like calm, rational demeanor in my communication style. And I appreciate the same from other people. So kind of the more hot-headed people that let their emotions run high, I have a harder time dealing with sometimes. I can take it to a certain degree if they're willing to take that feedback and kind of stay more even keeled. But the ones that are a little bit too hot-tempered for me, I don't work too well with. <laughs> and how great that you're a consultant so you get to make those decisions now. Right. And we were actually just chatting about this, but it's a big reason why I always start off. I never try to get a client to commit to a retainer up front. I always want them to do my introductory discovery session, which is a two hour deep dive into whatever we have identified as the core kind of challenges that we're going to tackle as we work together. So either on the sales side, on the company culture side, or maybe it's a combination of both, but I really want to do that two hour deep dive so that we can both assess, like, do they find, you know, my style effective for them? Do they get value out of the advice and the guidance that I'm sharing with them, but then also same thing on the other side. Do I want to work with them? Do we mesh well together? Do our communication styles line up? Things like that. So I always start with that two hour discovery session. And then after that, then we can talk about a more, you know, routine schedule, retainer hours, things like that. But I think that is really important to make sure it's a good fit on both sides. Totally. It makes me think of just regular interview processes in general. I was recently talking to a friend about how you know, it drives me crazy when I would interview people and they would never have any questions. I'm like, this is a two-way interview. Yes, you know, I might be the hiring manager, but you got to have some questions. I also know that in your experience, you as a leader had a lot of experience interviewing candidates. I'm curious to know what made people stand out to you during that interview process. I sometimes wish this wasn't my answer, but the <laughs> main thing that I look for first is a referral. Ooh. So going back to startups with every hire being so crucial and hiring, most of the time you're not hiring a ton of people at once, but a lot of people want to work at startups these days so you can get inundated and chances are an early stage company doesn't have the luxury of having an HR dedicated person. So you need to be as, or I, as when I was a hiring manager for a sales role or whatever it may be, I need to be as efficient as possible with my time. So if I get hit with 200 resumes, if I have, you know, 25 of them that have come from referrals from people I know, I'm going to give those the first look because I already know people are vouching for them. And then it wastes people's time less, just, you know, during the interview process and things like that. So that is the first piece of advice, but I always like to caveat that with a few other things because that can be really discouraging to people that say, well, I don't know anyone yet. And how am I supposed to get a referral if I don't know people? It goes back to my earlier point that there's no better time to start networking, like the sooner the better. And even in virtual times, you can still do that. There's so many great, you know, organizations and communities where you can do that. So that's my biggest piece of advice is start networking because you do need to have referrals. But I also say stand out for your resume 
we all know what the standard fluff resume looks like now. We can all look up those templates, but stand out. Like I want to see if you're in a sales position, I want it to be as quantifiable as possible. I want to see metrics. I want to see how often you hit your quota. I want to see any other numbers you can give me to make it more specific. That's really powerful. I also want to see, once again, me personally, but some personal details. So I don't define people just by their jobs and their experience. I also like to know a little bit about them. It helps them also stand out because if I've read 200 resumes and then I can remember someone, oh yeah, they also like cooking and I don't know, Japan, whatever it may be. That's really interesting to me just to kind of round them out as a person as well. Because once again, that person's going to contribute to our overall team and company culture. And it's good to know more about the person rather than just their experience. It makes me think about every aspect of that person is going to somehow reflect on the company. So how do you vet that out. I know I've had such interesting conversations around like, make sure they're a good culture fit. I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, you know, and, and then the idea of unconscious bias comes in. So how would you recommend that people go about communicating that type of information, whether it be on their resume or in an interview? Ooh, good question. I'll start kind of on square one. So square one, I always say, write your resume without anyone else's help or input, and then have three people read over it that know you in a different context. So don't just pick your three best friends. Choose maybe one best friend, one former colleague, and one former manager, because, and then ask for honest feedback. So don't just say, oh yeah, it looks great. Or maybe there's one typo here. Also, please don't ever have typos. Like that is such a red flag to me. Like that's an instant, like I can't. Yeah. <laughs> then ask for really honest feedback from the different contexts of how people know you. Going back to your original question of how do you phrase that? I think it's getting creative with your wording. And we all know the buzzwords that typically show up on resumes, but really take the time to sit and reflect about how you have contributed to past companies, both in a tangible way for your position, but also in your company culture overall. So for example, like one of my lines for one of my past startups was talking about how I helped plan a company retreat and company outing to show that I was kind of that helping to be the person to create company culture for that startup. That obviously wasn't in my job description. It wasn't an expectation or a goal of mine, but it was just one example. It's just one line. It's not taking up a ton of room on my resume, but it's showcasing how I get really invested. If I'm going to work at a company, I'm going to get really invested and be a cheerleader for them, a, a, an organizer of company culture events and things like that. So figure out a way to stand out there. And then also that's a way that you can highlight it in the like personal sections. I always have like a small personal section, like I mentioned, whether it's hobbies, interests, I don't know, background information. And there's ways to, I feel like, incorporate that as well to once again, get that full, well-rounded perspective to showcase that both on your resume, but then in the interview as well, I think it's telling stories stories. So a good interviewer will ask you open-ended questions of, you know, tell me about a time when, and then fill in the blank of, you know, you had a challenge to solve and you didn't solve it in the right way and you had to go back and do it again. Thinking of examples ahead of time. So if maybe the interviewer doesn't do that, you can, you know, include some of these stories that you've come up with that really paint a picture of how you've done your job well in the past, how you think you'll be able to succeed in that role that you're interviewing for, and how you think the company will benefit from adding you as a person into their company culture. So coming up with those ahead of time and then making sure you can tell those stories, whether prompted or not prompted in a seamless way. And then also goes back to, I always give people the advice of keep interviewing, even for jobs that maybe you don't hundred percent want. Maybe you're like 50% curious about the job, maybe 75%, but it could be a really good experience to go through the interview process. Interviewing is a muscle that you need to keep working because you can be really good at interviewing and you can struggle with it. It's, it's challenging to strike that balance. So 
the more you can practice, the better. So role play with friends or roommates or loved ones, but also practice with real people as well and keep interviewing. I love it. It's actually something I do with a handful of my clients is we do role play and I am the meanest interviewer asking the toughest questions just to make sure they're prepared. A lot of networking and interviewing is thinking on your feet and coming up with these answers or conversations that are going to relate to somebody regardless of what the topic is. Absolutely. I think that's a great idea. So this is a question I ask everybody on these episodes because I think this is really what a lot of people want to know. But Mary Stewart, what is your secret sauce to growing quickly at a startup? Ooh, my secret sauce to growing quickly. So going back to hiring, hiring passionate people. I want them to be genuinely excited about the company, the company's mission, and the role they're interviewing for. You can instantly tell when someone has just like mass applied to 20 jobs and they get on an interview, you know, via Zoom or otherwise, and they can hardly remember which position that they have interviewed for. So passionate people that are truly interested in the company and the position, because if they are passionate about that, yes, of course, I need them to have some skills and things like that, but I can train people to have tangible sales skills or client success skills, but I can't train for passion. Like I want them to be genuinely passionate. Next, I would say comes to goals. So when you have a team, I think it's really important for you to sit down with your manager or your, as the manager, sit down with your employee and identify clear goals. You want to call them KPIs, goals, whatever you want to call them, define them for that role overall, but then work together to make them bite-sized and achievable. Because in each one-on-one, you should be doing a one-on-one every week, I think, with your manager, like with your employees and managers. And a section of that one-on-one should be dedicated to their progress of their goals. So it should never be a surprise at the end of the month, if a sales AE did not hit their goals, the manager shouldn't be like, what? You didn't hit your goals? No, you will know that on week three. I mean, you'll know every week where they are in their goals, but if you know you have a, I don't know, hundred thousand dollar goal by the end of the month now you can batch it out okay i should be at 25k the first week and 50k the second week and no it's not going to be perfect every time but if you get to the third week and you're at 5k that there's an issue there and it should be addressed all along the way and there's no surprises so i say thinking through the goals specifically and then also my last piece of advice for the secret sauce is to be as open and direct but also empathetic with your feedback that's something that i actually struggled with as a first-time manager of such a large team, I was trying to strike the balance of having people like me and getting them to perform and do their jobs. And so I would really avoid the tough conversations and then either people would walk all over me or take advantage of that or not perform at the level where I knew they could perform. And that wasn't beneficial to me, to them or the company. So I had to quickly change that and force myself like actively force myself to have very difficult conversations in terms of performance to motivate people to perform, but also to let them know I'm holding them accountable. You know, I had to put people on performance improvement plans, which was never fun, but sometimes necessary. So reaching a point where you've had the conversation with the people that you're managing saying, I'm going to have open direct feedback with you. It's always coming from a place of love and we'll figure it out together. But I need you to A, reciprocate that. I need you to come to the table with me with that 
understanding, but no longer allowing myself to avoid the tough conversations really helped in my managing the team. Absolutely. And I appreciate you being so honest about that. I know I struggled. I think most first time managers struggle with that. Like I want to be liked or I have to look like I have it all together. Usually you fall in one or the other. And those hard conversations are terrifying. I think I had one of my first panic attacks ever the first time I had to have a one-on-one and I was like, uh, like I I couldn't do it. I was like, I'm sick. Um, reschedule. And it was like, you know, kind of had to rip the bandaid. But I think what I learned later on in my career as a manager is I needed to figure out how my direct reports liked to receive feedback and how they liked to be communicated with, because while I have a very distinct, clear, um, communication style, that's not going to work for everybody. And so you have to, as a manager, have range to figure out like, how is this person going to receive this in a way where they're not going to take it personally. They're really going to be able to absorb it and hear it. And so something I started doing with all of my direct reports a couple of years ago was sending out a monthly survey with different questions, some personal, like what's something you're looking forward to in your life. And then some work related, like what's a skill that's being underutilized right now of yours. And one of the questions I would always ask is how do you like to receive feedback and how do you like to be acknowledged? Some yeah. people hate being called out in a group. Some people love the attention. So knowing how your direct reports want to receive that information is crucial. So I love that you had these open, vulnerable, empathetic conversations. And I do that same thing about the giving and receiving feedback. I love that. It's very, very important. Absolutely. And I don't think a lot of leaders and managers do that. They just think, oh, I'm the boss. So this is how I communicate. Deal with it. (laughs) It's such an easy thing to do. It's not not rocket science. It's, It's pretty easy. And quick to implement. So yeah, I hope more people do that too. Glad we're on the same page. So obviously we're talking a lot about networking. I know you are not from Los Angeles. And I know that that first matchmaking job and the networking really helped you build your network. Are there any other helpful tips or things that you did to really build out your network when you came to LA? Yes. I think the best thing to do when you move to a new city or what I did when I moved to LA is I said yes to everything, every invitation, every anything that people said, you want to come do this or you want to do that? Yes. I will do it because I knew I could meet people and network and make friends too. I didn't know anyone. So I say yes to everything. I also joined as many listservs, groups, communities, organizations as possible. Everything from my alumni group to women's networking groups to business groups to meetups, you name it, I joined it. I wanted to make sure it was a good mix of online resources and then in person as well. I think striking a good balance there is really helpful. And then I also posted on social media, just telling people, hey, I've moved to Los Angeles. If you know anyone and the area. I'd love to connect with them. I want to make new friends. I want to network. I was very clear. And some people said oh, that seems so crazy. You're just like saying you have no friends and you need friends. I'm like, well, yeah, is that weird? I don't, I don't think that's that weird. But I moved to a new city across like 2,000 miles away from my old city. Like how else am I going to make friends? And it was so crazy how many people reached out saying, oh yeah, like my brother's uncle's cousin lives here. Or my sister's babysitter. And I ended up making some of my, my best friends, business connections. It was just a really fun way to kind of almost like speed dating just for friendship you know, going on coffee dates or doing, you know, back then I used Skype. I would do like Skype informational interviews, things like that. So I'd say that's a big one as well. And then also going back to the Google sheet is just to keep track of everyone. So I did that. And then I also joined, you know, the typical intramural leagues. That was a fun way to meet new people, friends, and, you know, get out there. I love it. 
I think a lot of people are usually afraid to do those things, but I've found that when you ask for help or put yourself out there, people are much more receptive than you would think. Way more receptive. And it's really hard the first time to go by yourself, but I promise, promise, promise it will be more beneficial if you can go by yourself because you can't just, let's say you went to a networking event at a bar. You don't want to just stand in the corner and look like the person who's too awkward to talk to anyone. But if you had a friend with you, it would be totally socially normal to stand in the corner with a friend and talk. And that becomes a safety net, a safety blanket for you. And it never pushes you outside of your comfort zone. So of course I've gone to events with friends, but when I was building my network, especially then I would just go by myself because then I would have to go up to people or groups of people and just, Hey, I'm Mary Stewart. I don't know anyone here. Do you want to talk? And people are always like, but what's the first line that you say? Who cares? It doesn't matter. I like your bag. Great hairstyle. Want to chat? Or are you alone too? I am. Want to hang out? I mean, come up with anything. No one has ever been like, no crazy person. Get away from me. Like that has never happened. So do it a couple of times, rip off the bandaid. I promise it will be fine. I love it. And I think that you're right on. I think people are maybe afraid to do that. So when they see somebody else doing it, they're like, you're a badass. Good for you. I love your confidence. Thank you. I like my haircut too. So I love that that's your approach. It's, it's, I'm sure some people would be like, that girl's got balls, but you do, you do what you got to do. It seemed totally normal to me. So I was like, all right, let's do it. (laughs) Awesome. So just to kind of wrap things up, you know, we're talking about startups, we're talking about growing and growing your network. Why is it so crucial in your opinion to grow your network when you're working at early stage startups or want to get into the startup space? I think it's crucial to build your network in a positive way because reputation is everything. This is a big city, but it's a small town. We all know each other and you don't get a second chance at your reputation. I I don't think at least because people form opinions about you and sometimes they make snap judgments, but every person that you interact with, that you meet, that you do business with, they form a perception of you and you never know who they know. So I always say, be very careful about the energy you put out there, the way you're interacting with people. You want to represent yourself in the way that you consciously want to be representing yourself. And for me, I lead first with giving. So I always want to help others first. A lot of people see networking as taking. What can you do for me? Well, I need to find someone that can help me and help advance my career. If you go into it with more of a mindset of how can I help others first, even if that help never comes back to you from that person, I always think of it, it's karma. You're putting good things out in the world. You're helping others never a bad thing. Even if it never comes back to you, who cares? You've done something good for other people. Like own that, like love that. And then the bigger your network grows helps you, but it also helps you make connections for other people. So you're paying it forward. And at the beginning, it is a grind and it is a lot of giving and it might not ever pay off for five years, 10 years, sometimes longer, but if nothing else, you're putting good out into the world. And you're also remembering that it's a small town, no matter where you live. So your reputation is everything. We're all connected and also don't burn any bridges. So you're leaving a company and you make that decision, make sure it's the right decision. And if it is great, own that, but also go out in the appropriate way. Don't leave and storm out or don't not give two weeks notice, like have a conversation. You owe that to your manager, regardless of what that dynamic is. Try not to burn any bridges and then also go above and beyond with every position. Because once again, that goes back to your reputation. And if you are seen as that person who's always helping others, contributing in amazing ways to the company overall, that's really going to be beneficial to you. 
It's going to make for stronger references. Talking about standing out on your resume, when they get to the part of checking your references, if that first call they make is someone, oh my gosh, Mary Stewart, she always goes above and beyond. She's an incredible sales leader and this and that. How can they not want to hire me after that? Versus just like, oh yeah, she did, she did her job and she did it well. But if they go on and on and on about how great I was and why, I mean, that's the best thing that you could ask for. So make the extra effort. Yes, it's going to take more time and energy and resources from you, but that's always going to come back to you and it's always going to pay off for you and for the companies you work for. Absolutely. It is clear that you are a master networker. And also I love what you were saying about paying it forward and going in with the intention of helping others as opposed to getting help yourself, because I totally agree with you that karma is legit and it's going to come back in some way. I mean, my gut says that you're still hundred percent a matchmaker, whether you call yourself that or not, just with your network and connections. I would agree. I'll always be a matchmaker at heart, whether it's for love, business, friendship, whatever it is. There's nothing that makes me happier. I genuinely just love connecting people for whatever purpose. I am the exact same way. I've also got my own Google spreadsheet. It's like our modern day Rolodex. Exactly. Exactly. Comes well, in handy. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. This was such a fun conversation and I know we're in the middle of a global pandemic, but like now I'm really dying to go to a networking event. All right. Yeah. Now we have to find the virtual networking events that are just as effective because that is tricky. That is something that most companies have not figured out how to do just as effectively yet. And I would love to see that happen. I think my, I feel my wheels are turning. I feel like you and I are gonna, some, something's brewing here. Let's do it. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so much. much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mary Stewart. All right.